You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon reading today is from Luke chapter 2, starting verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, King's Cross. Good morning to you and happy Advent as we continue and worship through this Christmas season. Hopefully you've had plenty of opportunities to enjoy the company of friends and family, to see faces you haven't seen in a while, um, and to just relish and revel in the joy of the Lord. Uh, We celebrate Advent as a time to reflect and remember that Christ came, that God came in the flesh. And we light the candles here, I'm going to do that one, which reflect uh, the values of hope. Last week, we talked about peace, and this week, we're talking about joy. Got it. I can light a candle. We talked about joy. Uh, Now, we would typically walk through books of the Bible um, and and read through, and so I'm going to do something, though, a little different from what we might normally do when it comes to text of scripture because though we have the sermon text reading in Luke 2, we are not going to spend the majority of our time dissecting and talking about what's going on in that, but really only looking first and foremost at the declaration in which the angels made. And that's that the news he brought to the, to the shepherds, which by the way, just take a step back. If you're a shepherd in the middle of a dark field, hanging out with friends, you're around the fireplace, I mean, the, whatever, the, 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 you got the, the fire set up, fire pit, uh, sheep smelling, walking around. It's a normal night. I was I kind of like underwhelmed by the way that that probably, like we, we represent how that probably played out. I mean, can you imagine the skylight, like an angel just showing up? There's no wonder he says, hey guys, don't be afraid. Right, like, like half my crew is probably ha- already running back to Bethlehem, right? Like just drop, just, just, it would scare, and then the sky opens up. Let's talk about that. This is an overwhelming scene for anyone. I mean, I'm not running around thinking, hey, God's here and present. I'm thinking the end is, is ending. The world is ending, okay? And he says, I'm coming with news, good news of great joy. And Jesus coming is good news of great joy. And we're talking about joy today, and we want to open up Scripture and look, why is it that Jesus coming so many years ago, like we sang about as a baby in Bethlehem, is good news of great joy even today? 
And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask and invite you to join with me in prayer that God would be with us and his spirit would speak to us and teach us through this time, and that we would be overwhelmed by the joy of the Lord. Will you pray with me that? Father, in your kindness today, you've given us the opportunity to come together, to hear your word, to hear, hear from you. And God, I pray that as you have promised, your word not return void. And Lord, that any preparation that I have, uh, that I have done would just be removed from the equation that myself would not be evident but god your glories in christ would be at the forefront so that we would revel in the joy that you give your people and i ask all this in christ's name amen so joy is a state or a feeling that we hear quite often even through our modern culture this is not some unique word to the to the christian culture it permeates everywhere joy and happiness shows up in music on a regular basis. In the 1970s, in 1970, Three Dog Night suggested that joy had something to do with sharing fine wine with your bullfrog buddy, getting rid of cars, bars, and wars, and having fun with the ladies and being a straight shooting son of a gun. I don't know about all that, but it was, boy, I cannot make that song sound any more boring, can I? Can I do that? <laughs> and then 2014, the whole world was dancing and clapping along with Pharrell Williams because I'm happy, right? And that's a joyful song. It's a fun song to sing. I'm probably going to go home this afternoon and play it on <laughs> in the kitchen or something. But there's plenty of songs about joy in the church, too. It's not just in culture, right? Many of you might be familiar. I grew up, I know, as a little one singing joy. I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? I was waiting for somebody. Huh? All right. Even if as a child, and maybe depending on your circumstance and the place that you were at, you felt like you were trying to convince yourself, right? I got the joy. This is joyful. But it's easy to confuse emotional experiences. It's easy to confuse those things, experiences of happiness with actual joy. And even the world as a whole understands those are different. Those are different things. There's an article on mind and mood on harvard.edu's website they make a distinction between joy and happiness in this way. They say, joy and happiness are often used interchangeably. However, happiness technically refers to the pleasurable feelings, emotions, that result from a situation, experience, or objects, whereas joy is a state of mind that can be found even in times of grief or uncertainty. Thus, we can work on cultivating joy independent of our circumstances. Winning the lottery may trigger short-term happiness. Spending time engaging in meaningful activities may result in long-term joy. This is Harvard. Uh, they acknowledge that as well as much of the culture would know that those are different things, but we can still get hung up and tied up in between them. Robert Dean and the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary on their on their article on joy says that it's closely related to gladness and happiness, although joy is a more of a state of being than an emotion, a result of choice, a fruit of the spirit. Having joy is part of the experience of being a Christian. And so where maybe culture tries to find ways to pursue, like Harvard says, to cultivate joy, and they had a list of ways in which you can do so, we as a church should take a moment to reflect and think, what is it the joy that Jesus actually offers us? It's the same thing we discussed last time. What is hope? What are we placing our hope in two weeks ago? Peace, where is peace coming from? 
because we can experience different emotions and feelings and states of being. But what is it that God is really offering to us in Jesus? And if we're being quite honest, and we don't always measure what the church and how the church and how people in the church are doing based on what culture says, because that's a losing battle. But too often it might feel like joy is not, found, is not suggested to be at home in a church setting. Instead, when we look and try to differentiate, differentiate between joy and happiness, people think more of us like, you know, the judgmental Jesus poking around the corner. Just trying to check and see, you know, when you slip up and maybe you eat some uh, that Popeye's chicken sandwich instead of Christian chicken. I'm like, what's up? <laughs> like we're a judgy group that just wants to make sure the world's not having a good time. That's why we say, don't worry about pleasure. Let's get joy. But the truth is, like the angel comes to say, that the news of Jesus is good news of great joy. It's not fake joy. It's real joy. It's deep joy. It's abiding joy. And the reason it's joyful is because it is God in the flesh come to be with his people. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not even going to hide the whole goal and the main point, because I felt as I was studying this, I was like, I can get really deep in the weeds, and then we're lost in the end, and everybody goes, okay, joy, it's nice. I want to make sure you know exactly where joy is coming from, so I'm going to read a verse for it, because the Bible's fun and articulate about this. In Psalm 1611, which is said, which is even revealed in Acts to be about Jesus himself, David is expressing this psalm, and he says this about God, you Reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Where is abundant joy? In God's presence. And so, believers here today, if you want to experience and pursue abundant joy, you pursue the presence of God. And Jesus was God in the flesh. He came to you. He came to me. He came to us. Joy continued in the, in the, um, in the Holman Christian Bible Dictionary says, it's the fruit of a right relationship with God. It's not something people can create by their own efforts. And the Bible distinguishes joy from pleasure. The Greek word for pleasure is something we probably are familiar with. It's where we get our word for hedonism the philosophy of self-centered pleasure-seeking. And Paul refers to in 2 Timothy false teachers as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're actually seeking something in this world, a pleasure that is circumstantial, it's artificial joy, and they're preaching and teaching about it, and they're making all their followers twice the son of hell than they are. Because where joy is found is not in the pleasures of the, this world and indulging in the benefits of God's creation while ignoring the creator. Joy is found where God invites us to know him. And then enjoy the benefits of his creation because they're also there to enjoy, but held in our hand as we enjoy his presence. And when Jesus came, he explicitly said what he came to do in John 10, 10. He said, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. And I know about you, but when I think about abundant life, it involves joy. He came to give you fullness of joy. 
And so we're going to look in three different sections here. First, about how Jesus reveals the source of abiding joy to us. Secondly, we're going to look at how he points out and calls out the enemies of joy in our life. And then finally, how he empowers us in our pursuit of joy, because I believe God is about your joy. First, how is it that he reveals the source of abiding joy? Well, he makes the Father known to us. He quite literally makes the Father known to us. If we're going to abide in the presence of God, if we're going to be close to him, it means we know him. And we can look at Jesus in John 14, 6 and 7. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Literally, they see him walking and they know the Father. That's what we talk about when we discuss like the Old Testament saints where they wrestled and fought to try to understand and know and see God. And we said the prophets came to express who God was and they talked about his judgment and his love and his grace and his mercy. And then all of a sudden in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus shows up and now we know him fully through him. He shows us everything about him. He clears up the air. Oh, you think God's some vindictive, judgmental guy? No, no, no. He's the father that stands at the door and welcomes you back home like the prodigal son. What is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is not some crazy, judgy, scary place where you don't know what God wants. No, the kingdom of God is like a treasure you find in the field that is greater than anything you could ever own. So that what? The guy who finds it in joy sells all of his stuff so he could have the treasure. That God comes to this earth as a babe, weak, frail, and I don't know why it struck me in the lyric when it said, I don't know what the exact line was in the song we sang there, but it said something that we can hold him in our hands. Like the, the fullness and power and glory of God was willing to submit himself to the frailty of a baby. and had to have Mary change his diaper. That is not like a glorious event. If you haven't had the experience, tumbling. So first, he shows us the Father. He shows that he's, he is loving, he is kind, he is generous, he is a friend of sinners. He wants to draw all those who are sick in. He's like a doctor or physician who comes to the ill. And he wants all of those who are outside of the kingdom to know him and come into his presence. He's a friend. Secondly, he shows us how to know him. And I differentiate between these two because, you know, how to know someone and to actually be known by them is a, is a theme we find in scripture that Jesus talks about. That it's important that we not only know about who God is, but that we're in relationship and close to him. And so Jesus illustrates how we do that. And first and foremost, honestly, if you have a friend, I just want to encourage you, if you have a friend you want to cultivate, if you want to cultivate relationship, the one that Jesus really clearly points out for us is you spend time with him. Uh, I mean, if you... Uh, or early on, maybe you're in a place where you're thinking about marrying someone, I will encourage you, you should probably spend time with them to get to know them. Right, just saying. If you have a friend you think is really close, you probably spend time with them. If you're a husband and wife, you wanna see it go for the long haul, you should probably spend time together. No, I'm gonna go really farther than that. I'm gonna be really radical, spend time together. <laughs> Not probably. And we always see Jesus constantly. Matthew 14, 23, after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Mark 6, 46 and 47, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, 
The boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. John 6, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he left. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In Luke 6, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayers to God. He spent time hearing from him. He learned, he knew the Old Testament because we knew he was reciting it. He spent time in the word hearing from him and he spent time in solitude. He spent time speaking to God in prayer and he spent time in prayer with others and for others. And he fasted. He fasted because 40 days we know into the woods to prepare him for for ministry and what did he do he refused to feed his flesh instead to focus fully on pursuing the presence of God like brothers and sisters this all might sound like legalistic stuff like oh I gotta check a box and do this there is no shortcut in pursuing the fullness of the presence of God and the joy that he offers I'm not asking you to do that because you'll earn his love I'm asking you to do that so that you can feel his presence The father sat at the the house with open arms the whole time. His love for his son never changed while he was in a far country. But it wasn't until he ran home, ready to humble himself and be at the father's doorstep that he was able to feel the full embrace of his father. And it's important that you consider that it's not only you pursuing God to hear from him, but you also then must listen and obey to what he asks. I say that because we read in places like John 5, 19, where he tells the disciples, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also likewise does. He gives us the example and says, we hear from and listen and see what the father's doing and we follow him in obedience. We do those things in which he wants us to do, which he guides us to do, because in those things are paths of life. And so many of us and so many folks who profess to know God refuse to actually do the things he asks you simply to do. And so then you prove that you really don't know him and his joy. And in return, he says he doesn't know you. There's an interview I saw where uh, Jennifer Lawrence of Hunger Games fame she was talking about how she began to draw a lot of attention as an actress. And, and as people started to, uh, she had to try to explain to her nep- nieces and nephews, her, ki- her nephews, uh, why they were putting like plastic bags over the windows at the house <laughs> so people couldn't see in because they started to get a lot of attention, as you can imagine. Uh, she said, nothing like a, a stalker for Christmas, right? Um, but she was trying to explain to them, and she said, it's because there are people who think they know Aunt Jen. So, so some of us are like celebrity stalkers who think they know God. <laughs> is that framed right? Is that the right thing? No, not really. But, but truth be told, that is a good description for like a little kid. They think they know me. How many times do people come up, how many times have you come up to one of your heroes? <laughs> you think we would be best buds? And then you really awkward, like, hey, what's up? How's it going? He's, that person does not know you at all. And according to Matthew chapter 7, there was a lot of people who are going to come into the presence of the Lord like that. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, (laughs) when they enter the kingdom of heaven, when they come before the throne, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? 
And one of the most frightening phrases in all of scripture is this, I will announce to them, I never knew you. And what does he connect not knowing you with? Depart from me, you lawbreakers. We're, we're not unfamiliar with this idea. How, how often in a movie scene, or, or maybe you have felt this way, where, you, where the, the actor or actress does something completely seemingly out of character, just devastatingly awful and terrible, and the other folks in the scene say, I feel like I don't even know you. Like, to recognize and know the person. In Scripture, we see the direct connection that to be known by God is to actually do what he asks you to do. It's put elsewhere, like in John 15, and connecting it to remain in his love. As the Father has loved me, verses 9 through 11, I have also loved you. Great. Jesus loves us. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. I've told you these things for what reason? Do you know why he tells you to do this? So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He's like, look, 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 don't be the prodigal son that thinks there's joy to be found in the far country. Remain in the house. Remain in my love. Do as I've commanded you to do. That's where abiding joy remains. Remain in God's love through obedience. Remain in him, as 1 John says. And we have come to know and believe that love that God has for us, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God. That's where presence of joy is. That's where the presence of God is. And friends, I've already acknowledged this. It might seem like work. It might seem like doing tasks and checking a list, but I can promise you this. If you are someone who professes Christ, if you are someone who claims the Lord's name, you are a target of the enemy, and it's work to maintain joy. It is. God's spirit in you and his presence with you provides an abiding joy, but the enemy is smarter than you'll ever be, and that's why we need him. And he knows your weak points, and he knows your temptations, and he knows your frailties. And I can confess to you, and I will be the one who does it first, that he knows how to set you off track. It's the reason that we're regularly commended to be sober-minded and vigilant because the enemy, like a roaring lion, is waiting to devour you. And so Jesus unmasked the enemies of joy. And so as people who are God's people, if we're going to pursue God in faith and we're gonna pursue his presence, we should also be aware of the enemy's attacks. They're things that draw us, hinder us from his presence toward the pleasures of this world. That's the first things we need to be aware of, those things that are temptations for us. And, and I think that what I'd like to do is we're gonna look at the way specifically we're shown that Jesus is tempted, and there are three categories that are covered in that period of time. There is a temptation. When he's in the woods, how does he, in the woods, he's in the wilderness. When he's in the wilderness, I just picture a guy out in the woods. Okay, when he's in the wilderness, He's being tempted by the enemy himself. And John, in 1 John, gives us some categories that I'm going to use for this that I think are helpful for us to think about when we consider how the world and the enemy is trying to steal us away from joy and God's presence. 1 John 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember that distinction? Remaining in his love. 
For everything is the, in the world, what is it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So the way that Jesus himself was tempted was in these same categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we're gonna say, because I'm a good KJV guy from back in the day, not the pride of one's possessions. Those are the same thing. The lust of the flesh first. This category encompasses physical, sexual temptations, immorality, gluttony. By the way, guys, I'm just giving a heads up here. You can't be like raving on somebody else's other temptations and problems if we have it. We can't say no to food every once in a while. I just want to, I'm talking to myself, just saying. And addictions. It represents the desires to focus on bodily pleasure over seeking God. In Luke 2, 4, we see actually when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's full of the Holy Spirit, we're told in chapter 1, and he was led by the Spirit to fast for 40 days and be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing for 40 days and he was hungry. I would imagine so. Listen, I went from like breakfast all the way to dinner last night and I didn't eat. And I was like, when is it coming? 40 days. And how did the devil tempt him? If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, as it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Now you might think, what's the big deal? Just have some bread, Jesus. What is that? Is that going to be bad? In this particular case, the father has led him to not have the bread. So is it bad for him? Absolutely, it'd be wrong. It'd be disobedience. Like, I'm not telling you, you're going to go around and go eat some bread. Enjoy your bread. Maybe you want to go gluten-free. I don't know. Maybe you can. But at the same time here, the bread wasn't going to be necessarily evil. But in this particular case, Jesus says, what I live by, the life that I'm seeking is the presence of God. Man does not live by bread alone. And so I must obey him in what he teaches and leads me in. And friends, elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus doubles down on that physical lust of the flesh because he takes in Matthew 5 the idea that committing adultery, sexual immorality, and temptation, and says that it's an, actually an issue of the heart. In verse, five, verse 27 and 28, he says that, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now here's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not going, but did you look at her bad? Okay, he's not leaning out with the tempt. He is warning you and inviting you and saying, by the way, it's a hard issue. Like, like you are still being pulled away from the presence of God when you indulge that in your heart. That's not where joy is. It's like, you know what? I didn't touch her. I didn't do anything. I just thought about it. He's saying, man, that's still going to be an enemy of God's joy. Secondly, he says the lust of the eyes. This involves coveting material possessions, wealth, what is visually appealing. It's about a desire to acquire what we see, leading to materialism. Luke chapter 4 goes on, the devil, after he didn't get him to eat the bread, he takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Hey, hey Jesus, check out all these kingdoms. Look at all this wonderful stuff. I'll give you that splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me. And I can give it to anyone I want, prince of this world. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Is that, is that not just, I mean, come on, we're not sitting up, none of us are sitting up on a mountain looking out over the, over the entire world and, 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 and Satan saying, hey, it's all yours if you worship me. But practically speaking, 
How many compromises are we doing to pursue the things of this world? The things that look good to us in this world. A desire for us to have more. A desire for us to increase what we possess, increase our power, increase our position, increase how we look to others. God's response, or Jesus' response is this. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's, it fits well with his encouragement in Matthew 6, where he talks about to his followers and he says to them, listen, I know it's tempting for you to think that the possessions you acquire here, the good things you acquire here are really important and helpful and the world's gonna tell you, man, hey, up your status. Get that big contract. Get that big job. Do those big things. Have all the prestige. But in Matthew 6, he tells us this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where three thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul's, uh, Jesus' encouragement it's for you to take your heart and put it where God is. Don't sink it into this world. Don't sink it into the things that you might acquire here today. And his warning in the parable of the sower is that life's worries, life's riches, and life's pleasures can choke out your spiritual life. And they're an enemy of abiding joy. They're an enemy of the presence of God. Thirdly, the thing that draws us away and tempts us, and they're not it's not completely indifferent, is the pride of life or the pride of one's possessions. Pride of life is focused on ego, self-importance. It represents a desire for recognition, status, power, resulting in arrogance and valuing human approval over God's approval. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after that, the devil finished every temptation, departed from him for a time. So what is the temptation that Jesus faces here? Hey man, you get some recognition. Hey, you're the son of God. He's not gonna let you break your foot or bust your toe or stub your toe, whatever. You'll be good to protect you. Just jump. See what God does. And how so often we might think in ourselves that we're good enough and strong enough and gosh darn it, people like us. I just felt like a flashback. If nobody knows what that is, it's because I'm old. Okay. But that we in ourselves have the ability to face this world and have no concern for what God, or just assume, maybe like just jump off the temple and say, God, catch me because I'm your child. And unfortunately, in the midst of all that, it's pride. It's pride that leads us to look at ourself. In the end, it, ends to, it, it can result in either us being just arrogant and thankful that, hey, look at me and how great I am, or can lead to fear, anxiety, shame, insecurity. All of these things are disrupting our peace. All of these things are getting in the way of the presence of God. All of these things are taking away from abiding joy. As a matter of fact, Paul contrasts in Philippians 4 
the idea of anxiety about this world and about this life with actually having joy and rejoicing in the Lord. They're enemies of each other. And so my encouragement between the pride or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these categories that they look different in each one of your life and each one of your tempted in ways and drawn away from God's presence in ways that are unique to you. We're not all the same. Some of us have ways in which we can relate to each other. We can talk about this. We can encourage one another. My encouragement is this. Do not sleep on the enemy. Because he's not sleeping on you. He's active and he's present. And he could care less if you have joy in the Lord. Matter of fact, if we had a bunch of moping Christians walking around thinking like, woe is me, I'm just making it through till heaven. Praise God, Maranatha, I hope he gets here soon. And they have no joy in this life that Jesus has brought and comes to bring. Boy, that is just exactly what the enemy would love to see. He would love to see your joy stolen. And the fourth thing that I actually wanted to point to here is actually something that might feel out of your control and I thought it's very helpful to recognize is trials and hardship, right? Like you can be tempted, you can be drawn away, you can go towards the thing of this world and actively sin and disobey and walk away from the commands of the Lord but there are some things that happen to you and me that are not inside of our control and I'd like to acknowledge that. And at the same time, they can rob you of joy and they can take you away from God's presence. Right, like, like you're being persecuted. Think about this. Challenges, sufferings, adversities can diminish joy. Experiences, especially when they involve oppression and injustice from others, can distract and distance us from spiritual peace and joy in God's presence. However, you know what scripture tells us to do? This is so hard. James actually says in verse two of his first chapter, Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. That is hard. Like, like, the enemy uses sin to draw you away from joy, and the enemy uses other people to steal your joy. But James says, friend, remember this. Whenever you experience trials, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete and lack nothing. Like trials, as hard as they may seem, are an opportunity to press into the presence of the Father. Like, like don't run away from him. Like the door is open. Like when you're, when you're sitting there rolling around in the pig's junk and food, like the, like the prodigal son, run back to the house. That's where joy is. That's where abundant joy is. And when you're struggling to see the light in this dark world, run to your friends and family in the church and pray together and seek the presence of the Lord together when you're too weak to do it on your own. Like pray for one another, pray with one another, seek God's presence together because trials and hardships will come, but it's not a reason to walk away and run away from God's presence. And it's definitely not, and it's not a place where you want to have the enemy steal your joy. And man, it is so so devastating to see how even in spiritual settings and abusive leaders have stolen and robbed the joy of the Lord from people who claim to know Christ. And, and let me just tell you, God sees them too. Like if you've been in a place where spiritual abuse was, was the norm 
Like Jesus sees you too. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, he warns people who dare do that. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Like you're literally keeping people from God's presence because you are oppressing them. And in Matthew 18, which I think is not just about little kids, in verse six, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offenses come. <laughs> God sees you, and the, the guilt, the guilty will not go unpunished, but there is still abundant joy in the presence of God that you can, you can enjoy that you can rest in. And I believe that Jesus empowers the pursuit of that abiding joy. He empowers our pursuit of it. Joy comes from knowing God the Father. Joy comes from knowing him. And if you're not expressing and feeling the joy of the Lord like you felt from the beginning, believers, if you feel like you don't know this joy, Psalm 51 is a warm blanket because David didn't feel it either. David literally slept with his, one of his friend's wives and had his friend murdered to cover it up. So if you feel like you're down and out and outside of God's love, and David's still in the kingdom, man, we're good. We're good. And in that Psalm 51 verse 12, David asked God to rejoy, to restore the joy of his salvation. He felt dry, he felt dead, he had walked away, and he said, God, give me that joy back. Hey, let's pray that together, friends. Restore the joy of your salvation. And Jesus gives us the opportunity to do so. First, he invites us to come boldly before God. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he is one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He knows the temptations that you face, friend. Therefore, because of that, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. He has demonstrated that the throne is available to you and the presence of God is wide open for you to come into. That the, that the king, the father, is, staying, is sitting at his home with his arms open, the doors open, waiting for you to come around the corner so he can run to you. That the veil that has separated God from the rest of the people was torn. That we can come boldly become the, before the father and you don't have to have all the right theological boxes ticked. Like, like legit, because I don't, and I'm up here preaching, so good. Hey, we're all in this... We can work through it together. So he invites us to come boldly before God so we can experience and revel in his presence and the grace and mercy that he has and he pours out on us. Secondly, not only that, he is a faithful friend. You're not walking through trials and hardships alone. Like you, you don't face temptation alone. Like Jesus came and told his disciples in John 15, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
Now that sounds like a bait and switch. Hey, if you do what I want, but hopefully we talked about this already. We follow what the Father tells us, then we remain in the home in his love. In verse 15, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. I have called you friends. And in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus sent out his disciples on the Great Commission, he tells them that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Do these things, go, but don't miss what he said at the end. Remember, I am with you always. Like I'm with you. He's a faithful friend who's with you. Like when you pray, you can stop and know that God is with you. Like you're not alone. You could come boldly to the throne and pray and say, God, I screwed up. And I know your mercy is great. And your grace is great. Show me where I'm. Show me what I need to do next. And Jesus says He's with you. And not only does He, and don't miss this. In verse eighteen, it says He has all authority Himself in heaven and earth. He actually gives you power and authority over the enemies. Do you know this? Like you're not frail and weak before the temptations of the devil. Like like it's not like oh well, oops, did it again. Like that's not the kind of defeatism that a Christian walks in. In Luke 10, when he sent his disciples out, the 72, <laughs> I love this. The 72 go out and they're, they're preaching and teaching and they're casting out demons. And they comes back in verse 17. They returned with joy. Woohoo! What happened, Lord? Man, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus says this in 18. I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I'm like, I'm always so tempted to get into like the nuance of that little thing. He just saw like, I mean, look, the enemy gets defeated every time Christians are victorious in this life. I'm just telling you, they take a hit, just saying. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Like, yeah, you guys are out there winning. All kinds of W's, no L's. <coughs> and he tells them, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. I'm not inviting us to snake handling. Okay, neither is the Lord. It's not an uncommon imagery for snakes, scorpions, and all these things to be connected with demonic forces. But we'll just leave it there. Okay? So he's trampling over these, and nothing will harm you. Why? Because we don't fear people who can harm our body, but only the one who has control over our soul. None of the enemy's devices can destroy your soul if you're in Christ. Verse 20, however, what do I encourage? What does Jesus encourage? Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you have access to the Father. Rejoice that you can live in his presence. Don't rejoice about those other things. Yes, you have power. Yes, you have authority. Yes, you do not have to submit to the temptations that come your way. But you should pursue this, the presence of God in this life, because in that place is abiding joy. And that's where we should rest, brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus has opened the door up to for us. That even today, you and I can enter boldly into God's presence. Like it's not a someday, maybe one day, maybe in the future, maybe heaven and earth opens up today. Like, like I, 
maybe you are like me. You open up your Bible. If you get up in the morning, maybe you're like, hey, I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to read the word and I'm going to pray. And it doesn't feel like heaven opens up. You do know you're going before the throne. Like you are in God's presence and you can dwell there. Like it doesn't stop. Like Paul says, pray always. But sometimes a little confession, I appreciate David doing this. He's like one morning he came in here and he said like, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you why you do this, but he said, he said, he was like, this morning, this morning I was complaining to God. He's like, I don't know if that's how you guys do it, but that's kind of like a relationship we have. You know, and, and God's big enough for that. Like you could dwell in his presence. And sometimes I'm driving down the road and I just, you know, I have my worst thoughts about people when, they, when I'm driving because of how they drive. And I'm sorry. I, like I find that as a regular confession. And so like, I'm just like, God, I, I don't know. We have a conversation. And we could do that. You could dwell in his presence. He's real and he's there. And we can do it together as God's people. And man, I would want nothing more than you walk out of here and you hear this word. And the one thing you take away is I would give everything up like the guy who finds a treasure in the field to be and dwell in the presence of the Lord. That abiding joy is of more value than anything the pleasures of this world offer you. Those are fleeting. They go away. They're worthless. And it might I have a confession for you here today as well, that when I looked at this and I said, I need to put trials and hardships and temptations here, I've experienced that myself. Ever so real and present. Like you guys know, like not long ago, I, uh, I lost a job I had. And that was like, might be the, not the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to you. You got four kids and Christmas is around the corner. You're kind of like, yeah, this isn't fun. And when I say that the enemy can look at you, man, I was... I felt in one of those joyful places I've been in my spirit. And that's a grace that God gave me that. That he prepared me for some really hard times. But I even, as I prepared for this Sunday, had to remind myself over and over again, there are ways in which I haven't listened to you, Lord. Right? Simple things. That, 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 that probably if I came in here and made like a confession, y'all be like, Okay, it's not that bad, right? It's not. I mean, it wasn't like outward gross over sin. Or, I wasn't sinning, except that I wasn't listening. I wasn't diving in and pursuing the presence of God. I was trying to figure out things in my own. And if we can pray together, and if we can encourage one another together into obedience and to the presence of the Father, man, there is no greater joy that this church could ever experience. And if you are someone who has never, ever experienced the joy of the Lord in your life, and you want to know the Father, can I introduce you to his son? Like, I would love to have that opportunity. The joy of showing you Jesus, who laid down everything so that we could go boldly before the throne of grace. Father, in your kindness, your word is life and you have given to us abundantly. And God, when we go from this building today, I pray, Lord, that whatever was spoken here from this pulpit and in our conversations, that it would bring that life to bear as fruit in our hearts. That, that we would see you as more glorious and that Jesus would be more beautiful and that the gospel would be more real and that we would abide day after day pursuing the presence of the Lord in our life. That you would pour out your abundant joy on us and in us 
and through us and that the world would look on our life and see the eyes of someone who has seen God. Father, thank you for your kindness. And we ask all this in Christ's name.